Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Londonist Out Loud is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. And actually, we decided to put Squarespace through its paces. We're very proud of the London blog we run, but we thought, what the hell, let's try putting another one together in super quick time. So we got on the case using Squarespace. It's very easy indeed. There were some beautiful templates to work with. The customer support was second to none. And within just one hour, we'd made a fantastic looking blog all about Peckham. Take a look at our post on the subject. See what you think. Squarespace could not be simpler to use. And because you listen to this show, there's a freebie here for you. You can start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code LONDONIST to get 10% off your first purchase. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. And listener, I need from you this week some blitz spirit, if you please. We had this great idea that for a podcast that spends so much of its time looking at London's history, wouldn't it be interesting to actually consider the processes in understanding history themselves? And so armed with these lofty ideas, we found a location that seemed agreeable. And OK, so Chiswick House and Gardens has an historical flavour to it, but it's not really central to what we were talking about. So given the fact that we could have recorded this almost anywhere, imagine our chagrin as we discovered that we were going to be spending the whole recording fighting with jet aircraft. We did our best. We persevered. I hope you'll persevere with us. If you've ever tried to have a conversation with your hairdresser while they've got the dryers going, you'll have no trouble with today's recording. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a song through from your front door. from West London, from the foot of the M4. We are surrounded by greenery and rain, 
and we may have picked the wrong day to visit a gardens but visiting a gardens is exactly what we're doing i'm with matthew lyons he's the author of the favorite amongst other things he's an historian and he is regarding with suspicion the dreadful weather good afternoon Nick. good afternoon we're up against it here aren't we we've not only the incoming flights to heathrow which are really making their presence felt. We're about uh, two inches from the plane above us. We've also got wildlife all around us. Well, there appears to be a, a very large chorus of birds in the tree nearby, which may be the West London parakeets. So I'm not much of an ornithologist, but they're um, certainly shouting away. Perhaps they don't like the rain any more than we do. <laughs> it makes you wonder why parakeets would have come to a rainy place like this and set up home and flourished. Why are they only in West London as well, by the way? I think they escaped from some collection at some point decades past, certainly in Ealing, which is where I live. They're in the park. The trees are full of them at different times of the year, which is very beautiful if slightly surreal. We are here to, well, a little bit talk about the place that we're in, but we're also going to talk more widely about history itself. Yeah, I have a column in History Today, and which I've talked quite frequently about the idea of public history, which is, you might think, the fairly obvious idea that, that historians academic historians ought to be engaging with the public in, because history is you know, core to our, our civil and political life and our cultural life and sense of identity as a people and as a nation. But it's actually an idea that is in many respects sort of anathema to, to the historical academy and, and they often view it with suspicion and you know the way historical argument tends to be developed within the academy is within quite some narrow silos of learning and it tends to be quite exclusive and presented in quite exclusive language whereas actually it ought history perhaps more than any other of humanities really ought to be out in the public marketplace in the in in the you know marketplace of ideas and thoughts about who we are and what we are and and where we're going in the future i mean if if you look at debates about whether we ought to be in the eu they're essentially debates about our historical identities as a nation or you know the debates around scottish independence at a a smaller level you know the controversy around the statue of cecil Rhodes. Oxford, whether that ought to be taken down because of his history as an imperialist. These are all subjects in which history is certainly relevant, but really is, is at the core of, of everything. And if, if academic historians aren't engaging with the public about these subjects, I think that's a huge loss. It's interesting that all of those items that you enumerated there, they're all about identity. And I guess that makes sense, you know, like Bob Marley said, you need to know who you were so that you can know where you're going. That's starting me down the train of wondering whether that's all history is about, about identity. There is the question of what, you know, how we got here, which is always an interesting question. And I think how we perceive the past is, is a constantly changing thing, obviously. You just take the Victorians, they, they saw, you know, a grand national narrative, which many of them led up towards uh, the empire and a sort of providential sense of English nationhood very much rooted in an argument about history and, you know, more contemporary debates about, well, that's been flipped on its head and arguments about Britain as an imperialist oppressor, as central to the transatlantic slave trade. And, you know, those are, those are all kind of moral arguments, really, about what kind of nation, what kind of people we are, how we deal with things we've done in the past, how we try not to make mistakes in the future, what we learn from political practice, social practice. I mean, you know, what you tend to learn, you know, the more you look at history, obviously, the more complex and less simple it is, and you see nuances and shades of grey, and even within perceived absolutes, 
such as, you know, I'm currently working on a book about the dissolution and we tend to, I think, often still look at that in very kind of grand political terms about Henry, about the break with Rome and about arguments about political power and, and the money that Henry got from the monasteries as, as well as defeating, if you or destroying, if you like, a potential power base within the country that might oppose his marital plans. But at a much smaller level, it's also about, you know, the monasteries were... It's, it's, it's an anachronism, but the monasteries were the National Health Service. They were provided most of the education throughout the country. So when they were dissolved, a whole level of care, of, you know, the elderly, the infirm, the, uh, the mentally ill, all that disappeared. So you have a, you know, a grand political statement to dissolution of the monasteries, brilliantly done by Cromwell, but also at, at a small level you have a, you know, a dissolution of communities and a social help, social structure, which you know you can arguably see echoes of today in debates about the future of the National Health Service, about how we're changing our education or the government wants to change our education system. Well, I wanted to ask about that because the incidents that you give there, it seems retrospectively a very clear-cut moment where Henry wrested power from the church. Do you see that same kind of power struggle in what's going on maybe today and by today, I mean the last 20 years perhaps, with unions being turned on their head and there being these challenges to their power from government? Yeah, well, the debate about where political power resides is uh, an interesting and complex one, and you can see... I mean, you talked about the unions, but you can see perhaps in the way that Jeremy Corbyn's idea of the Labour movement is, you know, one of built around grassroots campaigning and that kind of collective action, to some extent supportive of, of direct action, you know, on the streets and so on. That's a, a very different idea of democratic engagement to, to the, I suppose, more administrative political one, which sees power as, in many respects, coming down. It's, it, there's, you know, elections and so on, but power comes down from down the street from Parliament through local government and, and is, if you like, enacted on the people. And then, you know, that kind of argument, I suppose, which is in some ways about whether power is centralised or whether it's at a local, you know, grassroots level is, is one that's gone on certainly since, like, the Norman Conquest. And you can see certainly the Tudors, Henry VIII, um, Elizabeth I, were very, very engaged in centralising power, which for them, well, certainly for Elizabeth... Um, and later monarchs, it meant uh, diluting the power of you know the great families, if not breaking up their fiefdoms, and certainly weakening the structures which enabled them to have that kind of regional power. And Elizabeth had up you know uprising in the Northern Rebellion of 1569, which was essentially in partly about religion, and the, the old Northern families tended to be more Catholic, but it was also about their sense of political power draining away and the government under Cecil you know slowly trying to centralize decision making and yeah diluting the, the power the, the, the regional powers the, the regional polities um, at which you know the great families the Perseus and the Nevilles and so on were, were at the head and they actually had a couple of the Starks executed well yeah uh, well it's interesting uh, you know the Duke of Norfolk uh, who was executed in 1572 if I remember correctly used to actually say that when he was in his home I can't remember which house it was he was king of his his own domain, he's you know, king of my own country, and that's precisely the sort of attitude that, that uh, sent shivers down, quite rightly sent shivers down the spine of, of Elizabeth I and, and her ministers. I mean, he was ultimately executed for a very foolish plot to uh, marry Mary Queen of Scots and have her put on the throne. But that sense of huge, a huge sense of obviously entitlement was, you know, prevalent amongst the great families, and obviously that lasted. Uh, to, 
centuries really to be erased. I mean, arguably it's still there, and, and you can say in the House of Lords and the, the kind of ideas and ability and, and patronage and power. Yeah, by the way, actually, before we go a step further, I've realised that we've got a topical link here because everything you're saying will be jangling in the brain of the Game of Thrones fan who's been enjoying power struggles of exactly that sort. Are you a fan? I, I do enjoy it. I've missed out for various reasons on the last couple of series, but um, I, th- I think it's uh, Game of Thrones is brilliant. It's a very clever weaving of you know fantasy elements with the kind of political dynastic struggles of... You know, Renaissance Sicily and, and um, sort of late medieval, early modern England. I was going to ask whether, whether somebody with your background and your specialism, whether you would be watching that and, and spotting plot lines. Oh, uh, no. I mean, I think I think that way madness lies, doesn't it? You need to try and step back and enjoy what he does really well. I think, as you know, with I think a lot of great television shows like The Wire. You know, there are people who. Behave immorally and, and who are evil or, or whatever, but you also the shows in some ways don't judge them, and you get you get, they come full circle, so you become to see how their motivations come out of their own circumstances and issues that they've had, like the Kingslayer, for instance. Obviously, he throws Ned Stark's son out the window, and obviously he killed the last king, but the narrative evolves. You begin to see where his. Uh, we're here, but just in case somebody hasn't seen the more ah. recent. I don't, I don't think what you said uh, early on there was a spoiler because that happened in episode one. So, as far as absolutes go, then, do examples come to mind of absolutes getting in the way that are being made more nuanced? An example of something where people have thought of it as being a black and white issue, but now we've got a little bit more colour to it. I think if, for instance, you know, last year was the anniversary of you know the Magna Carta. Which, on one level, is, is held up as, as a great, you know, document that enshrines our rights. I mean, the, the more you look at this, the Magna Carta, actually, that wasn't, you know, a contemporary view. It's a view that that emerged really out of the debates and ultra, uh, around parliamentary sovereignty and about the divine right of kings that went on in the early 17th century, which ultimately led to the Civil War. It was if you like, rediscovered as a document. I mean, obviously, it, you know, it hadn't gone away, but it earned a potency then that it hadn't had for the you know, previous three or four centuries, which rolled forward into the you know, American War of Independence and so on, and, and, in, and in there, to a Bill of Rights and so on. And that, that is sort of the legacy of it. Um, but in itself, it's actually a more complex document, more rooted in the politics of 1215 and, and the power struggle between King John and, and the barons, which is again another power struggle bet- between you know a monarch who obviously wants to assert his absolute authority and less nobility or greater nobility who want to assert their independence and their sort of feudal rights against the overriding, if you like, national right. So it's it's, it's, that, it's ongoing. As you know, there, there's, across the arc of history, there, there are always struggles between you know super regional, super national powers and and more local, you know, regional powers. Whether those are about great families or, or about smaller democratic units. I mean, you could look at the, the movement for independence in Scotland is about freedom from what they perceive to be domination by England and by Westminster and wanting to devolve or devolve power because that. that is power being given they want to take power back from the UK to secede from the UK that's really another version of the same debate and obviously the same debate is going on with the EU whether we should step out of the supranational body and be more independent or whether our future is best served by binding ourselves into a larger polity we're going to talk about Chiswick House 
because we can't be at Chiswick House without saying something about Chiswick House, but if I don't ask somebody with the, the sort of long view that you've got with your background, I'd be a fool. So, uh, Europe, what should we do there? I th- it's hard to be. I find it hard to be enthusiastic about Europe. However, I do think it best serves our national interests, e- economically and culturally and politically, to be in Europe. And you're basing that on what? I think the, you know the, the trend towards globalisation means smaller polities are going to inevitably have less and less power. And I think having a place in, in Europe uh, within the EU amplifies our power. And I think without it. Our ability to negotiate trade deals and have a voice on the world stage is greatly diminished. I think the argument for leaving is more emotional than economic and intellectual. Um, well, people, people were banging their fist on the table and saying, no, it's very much an economic argument. Yeah, this is just my perception, obviously. <laughs> I think it comes from a, a, a sense of our identity and nation being diluted and which is obviously in, in some respects is one of the forces that's driving the move for Scottish independence and it's not it's a perfectly legitimate view but I suspect that for most of us life would be exactly the same afterwards with you know maybe more complications when we go to France for holidays or, or whatever but it's I think it's more of a sense of where are the long term where history is going where the history is, is going towards smaller independent nations or, 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 or cultural units within, within larger frameworks or are they entirely independent I tend to think that the Leave campaign is based in a sense of historical British identity um, which looks back to you know the days of empire and, and uh, our colonial power and when Britain's voice and position on, on the world stage was, was much greater and it kind of, I think it hankers after that kind of you know, grand isolation, if you like, holding the balance of power between the US and, and, and Europe from the outside as a kind of pivotal, pivotal place and pivotal market in the world. I tend to think that the world has moved on from there and that the balance of power is, if anything, swinging east away from America and, and Europe towards China and India. Therefore, you know, we will become increasingly marginalised if we, if we marginalise ourselves from Europe. There was a very good book out, uh, I think last year, Peter Franklin wrote a really, really good book called Silk Road, which is essentially that the core argument is about how we misunderstand the last two millennia because we see it from the West point, from the perspective of the West, and it's all about how, how much originated and how much power actually has resided and, and still and continues to reside and will reside even more in, in the East. I'd really recommend that. It's also a really beautiful book. And that, I, I don't know if you feel the same way for me, that seems to get to the core of how history evolves, is that it's about changing perspectives, whether that's through time or geographically or, or by some other means. Some of those big demographic things like race or gender or the, the way that they evolve and we see them from a new perspective and we understand. And, and maybe that's at the core of my distrust of the idea that we go it alone, is that I feel like that view is positioned 50 years ago. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I mean, history is all about where you're standing from when you look at the past. And I, I mean, I tend to think the isolationist view is one that 
is based in, in the sentimental, small-c conservative idea of our strength as a nation. I mean, it, it exists on the left as, as well as on the right, but I think it's conservative and backward-looking. Well, collaboration is what it's what it's all about, and you're talking about the about public history, which sounds, again, as though it's a, a case of walls being broken down and people working together a little bit more. Yeah. Can we say some more about drawing the public into history i think there's a there's a, i think there's a discomfort uh, with many academic historians about engaging with the public i think there's a kind of distrust of the idea of engagement and of standing in the public square within the academy that comes from partly i think it comes from Inevitably, a lot of academic work is looking, uh, you know, in, in quite a lot of detail at quite small areas within history or within within culture, within uh, you know art and so on. And those are often difficult ideas and, and, and narratives to place before the public without you know a great deal of explanation. I mean, what's great about Peter's book is that it has this vast canvas. It's, I mean, it's hugely detailed, but it also has this vast canvas and a really strong, big argument. Whereas I think a lot of academic writing across the humanities, they're quite small, detailed arguments, and they uh, tend to get wrapped up in a lot of jargon, for want of a better word, which is which is quite exclusive. And, and you've got to be into that area of history in the first place. An academic, uh, English academic called uh, Andy Kesson, who's at Roehampton, is working on a project with Lucy Munro at um, King's College about the London playhouses of the early modern period. And he wrote a really great blog last week, I think. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Where um, we're talking in the context of Shakespeare and I suppose to some extent Shakespeare before 100, saying the trend in academic studies is towards you know very micro study where a there's gravitational force of Shakespeare but within Shakespeare uh, it tends towards you know very micro study of, of his work and so on and actually no one has really stepped back and looked at the playhouses as the, the cultural infrastructure that enabled Shakespeare and his contemporaries to happen and some of the, he and Lucy have a 
project. I think it's called Before Shakespeare, but essentially it's, it's, it's a big academic three or four year project look, look, looking at all the playhouses, which hasn't really been done before. Which is it's it's you know almost like the elephant in the room thing. Everyone's looking at you know the elephant's tusks or whatever. But actually, you know, how how did we get to a place where there were this, this thriving dramatic culture? Yeah, suddenly this incredible culture. proliferation all yeah. at once. Yeah, so it kind of explodes in you know the 1570s or whatever. Um, but no one's really looked at. I mean, obviously there were the, you know the playhouses later, the Globe, the Curtain, the Theatre, the Rose, and so on. But also there were all plays being performed in lots of inns around London. I mean, we think about the players, you know, going on tour outside of London, you know, when playhouses were shut or whatever, but actually they could, they could in practice tour in London as well. The Cross Keys in Grace Church Street, the, and so on. And others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We should, uh, we should talk about the setting that we have got around us here, Chiswick House. What do we know about Chiswick House? Well, Chis- I mean, Chiswick House is built, as I understand, it's built on um, the current Chiswick House, which is sort of near Palladian, built and I think designed by Lord Burlington in the early 18th century stand to be corrected on that if I'm wrong and it's built on the site of a Jacobean house I mean what one of the things when we're talking about Shakespeare I mean one of the things that's interesting about this I mean the great collector and sort of establisher of the idea of Palladian architecture in England or in Britain was uh, Inigo Jones and I think some of the designs for this house were based on designs that he had collected from Palladio in Italy and there's a statue to Inigo Jones I mean going back to Shakespeare and, and Shakespeare 400 and Again, questions of identity. Inigo Jones worked with Ben Johnson, as well as being the 400th anniversary of um, Shakespeare's death. It's also the 400th anniversary of Johnson's first folio, which actually was, was uh, the first time anyone cre- had created that kind of work and set out to establish that kind of... Uh, to assert the cultural importance of, of English drama. As, as you know, before that, plays were published in quite an ad hoc way in quartos and so on. So Johnson made a concerted effort to assert the value of his work and to uh, and, and the value of, of drama and English drama as worthy of keeping and sort of study, which I'm not, you can certainly argue in terms of Shakespeare without Johnson's folio, there would be no Shakespeare folio. And there is an argument that Johnson was heavily involved in collating and editing Shakespeare's work, that's kind of unproven. Shakespeare does talk about the immortality he'll gain through his words, but it sounds, from what you're saying, as though perhaps he wasn't necessarily up the sharp end of making himself immortal, of, of uh, securing the existence of his texts. Well, typically for the Elizabethan and Jacobean dramatists, you know, publication wasn't really how they made their money. They made their money through from them being produced on stage. Obviously, Shakespeare, as a shareholder, then had an another stream of revenue aside from that but publication was it's not a perfect analogy but 20th century pop culture is quite disposable and it's only you know in recent decades that it's that it's been perceived as you know collectible and, and valuable in its own right so if you look back or, or 20th century film you look back at the first 20 years of cinema there's huge numbers of lost films because people didn't think they were going to be worth preserving. Same with Elizabethan drama. It was, you know, off the moment. They performed, you know, three or four nights maybe, and, and then the troops were, were on to the next play. So it's quite disposable kind of culture. And it's only in retrospect, I think, that we look, we look back and think of them as, thanks to Johnson in part, as worthy of collection and, and, and reverence. 
It reminds me very much of the... We talked about the 20th century pop culture, so I was thinking of zines and some of the material that would accompany bands that didn't necessarily make it big, but it was very much the grassroots of the music scene in perhaps the 80s, and indeed blog culture now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you can see the patterns repeating and repeating. I mean, I guess, you know, in 50 years' time, people will be... Searching for the video games of the eighties and the nineties, and the e-zines and the comics, and well, people are you know, comics now from the forties and fifties are you know, collectors' items, and increasingly seen as culturally important in a way that they certainly weren't when they first appeared. Was Inigo Jones? Because I'd love to focus on that yeah, yeah. for a moment. He pops up in various different places. It seems as though he worked in. Am I right in saying he worked in different fields? Uh, quite literally. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think he was primarily an architect, but you know, in, in a very kind of Renaissance way, he was something of a you know polymath. My knowledge of him is is mostly based around his work on masks with Johnson when they had quite a, a difficult relationship. And essentially, I mean, uh, for, for those who don't know, masks were quite short plays that were put on once at court. I mean, it's primarily a feature of the Jacobean and Caroline court. Huge spectaculars cost a lot of money. Johnson and other writers would write the words, and uh, someone, Inigo Jones or other people, would create these lavished, you know, must be Berkeley <laughs> style extravaganza. So, this was the musical of his era, wasn't it? I guess they weren't necessarily song. They had songs, dance, I mean, sometimes members of the court were performing them themselves, often quite for the time, spectacular mechanical effects, huge amounts of money. I mean, they're, they're quite curious artistic things, uh, masks, because they were. Obviously, a celebration of court power and wealth and extravagance. But Johnson certainly regarded himself as something symbolist. And if they weren't, you know, we talk now about speaking truth to power. I, I don't think that's masked with that. But I think for Johnson, they were kind of speaking art and morality to power. There's often messages, for want of a better word, and, or, or ideas about political power that, that are encoded in them. And, I mean, Johnson and, and Jones, there's a statue to Inigo Jones here around the court from where we're sitting, which uh, I imagine would, would, Johnson would have been infuriated by because uh, they had a terrible working relationship. Because, uh, obviously, he was paid a relatively small amount of money to the amount of money that got spent on spectacle. And I, I think often when they were acted at court, a lot of the attention went to, to the visual element, as we do now. You know, the, the visual element of films is... is what we take away often and um, Johnson being the kind of person that he was resented that greatly um, he tended to resent a lot of things but um, he certainly resented uh, the attention and uh, money <laughs> lavished on, on Jones was he, was he a seething man? He was a man with a very keen sense of his own importance quite uh, I would imagine well I'm fairly sure pretty short tempered and also one of those sort of professional troublemakers he was an odd man because, you know, he, he sought court patronage and power, but he couldn't resist biting the hand that fed him either. And we're constantly in trouble with different political or court authorities about his plays. I mean, he spent some time in prison over one of them, called before the Privy Council for, you know, sedition. Actually, he was in prison for two plays, I think. Um, you go through his life, there's all sort, he's always falling out with people and... Um, Offending people about well almost anything really you know even though he sought patronage from the court of James I and I suppose political influence and money from the court he was in prison in 1605 for a satire full of abuse about Scots in London he couldn't resist it I don't think and in a way he's quite an attractive figure I think his work is hugely undervalued and I think I would like to see this year 
a lot of a lot more focus being spent on Johnson and his influence because Shakespeare gets plenty of that. We could do well with pulling the camera back a bit and seeing all the other playwrights of excellent calibre and poets as well. They get very little look in until you get to maybe John Donne or someone like that, but there are a lot of fantastic poets around at that time. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I wouldn't deny Shakespeare's genius, but his centrality to a certain kind of view of English culture really serves to demean a lot of other great work and important and um, you know hugely relevant work that happened at the same time it's almost like a marketing phenomenon these days in Shakespeare so you know you, the culture sector will talk about how much his, his, you know his worth to Britain's cultural export and so on and it, it's you know like the monarchy it's like a sort of heritage attraction and I don't think it does Shakespeare any good actually you know it's, it's a very kind of again top-down middle-class sense of who Shakespeare is and what's interesting as well is just as we were talking earlier on about the evolution of ideas in history Shakespeare 150 years ago was not a big deal people weren't uh, he wasn't regarded as being uh, such an important figure as he is today yeah it's certainly like for the well for the first sort of hundred years I mean Johnson was considered the, the more important figure through to the Restoration, Johnson had a much larger sort of cultural shadow, cultural imprint, and the sort of deification of Shakespeare sort of begins, yeah, a couple of hundred years later. Really, it's, I suppose it's, it, it ties in, I suppose, with um, to some extent with the Romantic movement and ideas about, I suppose, emotional identity and, and there's a particular kind of humanism and individualism in Shakespeare which you know resonates and resonated has resonated with us for the last couple of hundred years. But I mean, it's quite. Sorry, I'm just, I've just paused to look at some ducks who have <laughs> come to join We're being assaulted by wildfowl. Um, I've, I've forgotten what I was saying. What was I saying? Deification, several hundred years. Yeah. I was distracted by the ducks as well. <laughs> Listen, Chiswick House needs to earn its keep. You mentioned the Neo-Palladian style. We've mentioned the Jacobean origins. What else do we know about Chiswick House? Mm, this is a good question. Um... I always think when somebody tells me I've a, it's a good question, I always think that's code for something. That's code for giving me a minute to think. <laughs> <laughs> so not, not a good question necessarily, actually. Yeah, quite the reverse. <laughs> um, well, no, it means uh, I, I can't quite remember. Hang on a second. <coughs> um, I mean, this, this was the, essentially the country retreat of, of Lord Burlington, of Burlington Arcade fame. Um, oh, that's him. Yeah. Um, so, so for people who don't know Burlington Arcade, it's just off uh, Regent Street, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know... Land that he used to own, and um, I don't think he had any particular connection to the shops that are there now. It's a very high-end <laughs> little arcade of uh, tailors and such. I think. Yeah, but I was going to ask what it was when he owned it. No idea. <laughs> no, I have to find out. Um, I think it's. I think it's built on land owned by his family. I think possibly. I have an idea. I could Google it. Actually, I have an idea. That Royal Academy used to be his house. Do you know, we, we get into uh, such trouble. I should say there are uh, one or two people who, when they hear an historian or an enthusiast of any sort, need to look something up or not know absolutely exhaustively everything about the subject. Um, we, we get emails that, oh, he doesn't know anything about anything, called himself an historian and all that. And uh, I, th- I think that's a little unfair, really. I don't think knowing absolutely everything in the world comes with the job title. Well, yeah, no, and I will give you the classic historian of defence of it's not my period. <laughs> Is that why people are so specialist then, so that everything's not their period? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, it's not my field of study. All-purpose defence, really. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the Royal, uh, the Royal Academy's Burlington House, isn't it? Uh, 
think, I assume, that that was um, the family house. Well, obviously, the, the London residents, this in Chiswick, then would have been way out in the burbs. Um, yeah, we'd have been uh, very much in the countryside. Mm, yeah, yeah, well, this is... Looking at the housing stock around here, I'd say it was uh, late 19th century. It became part of London, I would guess. Can we talk more generally about about what West London has to offer? The other possible venues that we could have met at would have been where? Well, I mean, there's a whole slew of, of houses that I, that I guess would, like this one, have been country residences. Over, over in Ely, you've got Pitsanger Manor, which was John Soane's house, which I think is currently undergoing renovation, going to be reopened, I think, next year. Which is good, actually. For quite a number of years, it's it, suffered neglect is probably a, a, an overstatement, but it, it's been in need of some TLC, and uh, it's, it's getting that now, and that's great. And they've, they've um, redesigned Walpole Park, which used to be the gardens, but is, is now uh, a public, lovely public park, and they've redesigned that along the design, along um, broadly along the lines of the original design, with additional cafe and other facilities for children. There's Ham House over in Ham. Sion Park, am I in the right? Sion Park, Duke of Northumberland's place, a huge mansion over by Kew. Still owned by the Duke of Northumberland, actually. I mean, going back to what we were saying earlier, I mean, that's that's the Percy family, you know, back in, back through English history. They were talking about how wealth and power and privilege cascades or streams down generations. The Sion House is a huge house and uh, recently built a hotel in, in the grounds. I think it's a Hilton a huge hotel. There used to be a, a butterfly sort of butterfly sanctuary there, which was lovely, and they pulled that down to uh, build a hotel. I'm devastated. That was a wonderful butterfly sanctuary. Yeah, it was gorgeous and strange actually. I mean, I, I'm not aware of any other I'm sure there are such places, but it was kind of a novelty but yeah, no money talks. I mean, you know, the site, uh, as, I said, as I said a little bit earlier, I'm working on the work at the distribution of the monasteries, and, and uh, I mean, Sion House was built on Benedictine nunnery, which was uh, dissolved in 1538-1539, and the current house is Adam House from the early 18th century. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, looking at uh, the distribution of the monasteries and, and the monastic imprint on London life. It's very interesting, actually, looking back at early modern sources, and people like Stowe talking about, you get a very strong sense of even, you know, 60, 70 years later of a London still, you know, as, as it was you know, after the Blitz or in the latter half of the 20th century, London with uh, monastic ruins around, with monastic buildings that have been repurposed into domestic houses primarily for, for the wealthy. I mean, some of the Blackfriars uh, was converted in, into essentially high-end apartments for people like the Earl of Oxford and so on and also Tyke Beckham and Shakespeare there was some theatre there as, as you know later on in, in the early 17th century you just have to look at a map of London and look at Blackfriars, Greyfriars, Whitefriars um, Covent Garden you know, the imprint of, of monastic London of, of the monasteries and, and uh, the architectural and if you like cultural imprint is, is, is still there and I think one of the interesting things to looking at, at uh, Architecturally, what you know, what happened to to the monasteries? Obviously, some were completely demolished. Lewis Priory, being a classic example, work which, which Cromwell took for himself, essentially hired an Italian engineer to demolish. And there's, I don't know, one or two courses of brickwork now. There's literally nothing there. Two, you know, great houses. Obviously, many many parishes retained priory churches or, or conventual churches uh, as as their parish church. 
and the other bit and the remainder buildings were, were demolished. Some of the cathedrals were former religious, um, the churches of religious houses. Some were repurposed for you know domestic houses for the wealthy. So the uses, the uses to which the physical property was put, you know, a little, if you like, a little history of England and their own. There's the sense of wealth passing from. Obviously, the, monast- the monasteries are curious, and, and I think it's quite hard for us to appreciate now exactly how central they were to cultural and economic life. Obviously, they were uh, they were quite substantial employers. They, you know, landowners and, and so on. And uh, you know, although they were in many ways reserved from the public, they also were very integrated into local public and rural and, and, and city life. So key parts of the local economy, leaving aside education and healthcare, as I mentioned earlier. So uh, when they went, there was essentially a huge privatisation of a kind of national wealth. And I think when you see it in those kinds, of, in that kind of frame, you see um, it's quite interesting kind of contemporary resonances in terms of you know ongoing arguments. You've talked earlier about you, you know the break, breaking of union power, and obviously went along with politically. Um, privatisation of nationalised industries and nationalised services and debates you know now about to what extent the national service national health service should use private companies to deliver various services you know whether within hospitals or in terms of community support I mean these, these are all question of like, who owns wealth and who benefits from how wealth sort of resides in the community these are all ongoing conversations hmm. Unlike ours, which uh, unfortunately must be no more, uh, we've come to the end of our time here at Chiswick House. If people want to uh, rush out and secure a copy of a volume of your work, by what name does it go? Uh, well, my latest book is The Favourite, a book about Elizabeth I and Walter Raleigh and their relationship. Uh, As in, it's called The Favourite. It is indeed called The Favourite. And yes, available from all good booksellers online and uh, in the real world. Matthew Lyons, thanks very much. Many thanks. And that is all for this week. My thanks for this week to Matthew Lyons. Thanks to to Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.